one of the women in this group, yesterday said to me, are you ever going to give the advanced course? Or is this all you have to offer? Can't but admire that, I must say. That's as good as you can get. <laughs> Wish I'd said it. <laughs> I will from now on. And so I mumbled all of the usual things I say about why most of the people that come to be with me come to be with me and with the group that I gather and so on. I guess I teach at the level that is resonant with the collective consciousness. That's why I do what I do. But I don't quite believe that. It seems to me it has to do with love. Like when Aretha Franklin would sing, or people like that, the person would play the audience until the audience opened, and then the audience created this incredible wave of energy, and then the singer sang. The singer sang the voice of that energy. And you can feel that in great rock music, I mean, these great rock concerts, like a Grateful Dead concert is basically like a religious church experience. For me, it's, it's an incredible experience in which the audience is as much a player as the players are player. And everybody realizes it's a group experience that everybody's having together, and all the people up front are doing are steering the ship. They're not necessarily at play on the ship. Well, I asked myself if I was going to give the advanced course, what would it be like? Would I just be silent? Since I understand that words are a hype, that here we are trying to get out of the addiction to our conceptual mind and all I'm handing you is concept. I'm inviting you to see them the way I see them, which are like birds flying through the air. And see the concepts from a place of absolute emptiness. Words are just the stuff. They're like the paintbrush to paint canvases. And the Zen monk who keeps painting canvases and then throwing them over his shoulder into the river as he's floating downstream. I thought there are a number of things I would do if I were giving an advanced course. I wouldn't demand linearity of myself because when you're talking to yourself, you don't have to complete all your thoughts. You sort of see where they're going and you go on. But when you're talking to other people, but are there any other people here? I mean, are you them or are you us? Or even if you're us, that's not very interesting. Are you me? Am I talking to myself? If I'm talking to myself, I don't have to explain it all. Am I ever going to get to the point where I assume I am talking to myself? or I act as if I were, or whatever that level that is. So you can hear that part of the way in which you and I are dancing together. And then I examine the way in which I love other people. That would come in in my advanced course, because that's the place I'm playing with now. Because I realized that if I expressed all the love I felt for other people, I wouldn't be able to get rid of them. And I'm much too smart for that. So if I were giving the advanced course, I'd be talking only to myself. And whether you got it or not would be your problem, not mine. 
whether you were busy being who you think you are or being ourself. <laughs> if you wanted to be separate, blessings. We'll wait. <laughs> it's 100,000 incarnations. This is the advanced course, see? Like in the advanced course, I'd read things like this quote from the Prajnaparamita. All this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of light in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, a dream. All this fleeting world, a bubble, a dream, a phantom. If I were giving the advanced course, this is the place I give it from. I give it as fellow connoisseurs and appreciators of the bubble. A shared awareness delighting in the play of the Lord, the play of the forms of the universe. Not so afraid to look at what is because you're afraid you'll melt. Being made of tougher stuff. That you can look at Kali and Shiva and their work and you can look at change without freaking because your awareness is not identified with that which changes. You and I are living in a culture that is paralyzed by fear. Its creative juice is almost totally drained out of it by its fear. This fear is the fear of change, the fear of the unknown. And yet at this moment in history, we are in a, a moment in which we are like a snake getting a mythological structure in order to grow a new one. Recently I made a list of myths that you and I were in the middle of shifting. We are caught between stories. And that's the ground for incredible anxiety. Because who you were was defined by the, the myth. Where you fit in the scheme of things. Just let me run through this list and get a feeling for how it embraces you. Many of us grew up with the American dream myth. And we saw the GNP rising and rising before our very eye. And every next generation was better off than the last one. New moment. New myth. This generation is not as well off. Their money doesn't buy as much security and safety and luxury and life. And they have more endangered resources to live with. And that's what we are giving not the seventh generation, but the next generation. So we have a shifting myth. We're still holding on to the old one. In each case, you'll see how much we hold on to the old one because we don't want to face the new one. We are a youth culture. 
our values are in youth, our world mastery, etc. However, the baby boomers will be 50 in 1996. So not only is that the power realm age of the society, but it's just over the edge. The baby boomers are starting to go out by the cultural values. Because when you're old, if you're a hunt in a part of a hunting tribe, they just leave you behind. If you're part of a gathering tribe, they have jobs for you within the social structure. You're part of the system. You care for the children. You're an elder. You are the holder of the wisdom of the tribe. But the, what our culture has done to aging people is fear, panic, loss, isolation, irrelevance, irrelevance, a kind of a burden to the social system. And yet all of us are on that path to aging. In India, they have ashrams or stages of life. In the first stage, you're a student. And then after about 20, you're with family. And your job is to work in the world and do very, very well. Very successful in terms of resources. And those resources, there's a formula for how you use them during that period. You use them for your family. You use them for children and old people. You use them for holy people. And then in the third stage of your life, your children are grown, they take over the business, and you start your studies, your spiritual studies, your pilgrimages, things like that, alone or with a partner or with a community. And then comes, when you're 60, the sanya stage, when you are free of all structures, and the society just says, go, baby, go. Society's there to support you because it needs what you have to offer. And it's a mature enough society to recognize this fact. That's the interesting shifting myths of youth. We grew up, many of us, with the myth that humans were the stewards of nature. Was humans or nature, even worse, nature was there for humans. Stewards, at least, was a nice rationalization cop-out. But the game that you're afraid of is that you are just part of it all. You are part of a biotic community. You are part of many, many social structures, and that's as much your identity as your being busy being an individual. And there's the next myth that's in transition. I remember participating in the support of a number of myths that are now dysfunctional, by the way. I thought the atom, splitting the atom was great. I was wrong. But I thought that individualism was wonderful because it was liberation from social institutions. And it was empowering the individual to think for themselves and feel for themselves. And that's what the 60s seemed to be in large part about feeling and thinking for yourself so that if you went into a community, it was an intentional act on your part to be part of a community. It wasn't, you weren't locked into systems. 
And the 60s were far out in that sense because all of the vertical systems, all the vertical power structures turned into paper tigers. Oh, they could sting, but they were still paper tigers. I mean, the image that I love is of all of the hippies surrounding the Pentagon and holding hands and oming to make it rise. <laughs> I mean, doesn't it change the image of the Pentagon now? Not the Pentagon. Yes, the Pentagon. Om. Now, it is true only a few people saw it rise. <laughs> but it wasn't the issue of whether you saw it rise. They gave credence to that. It was the issue of the symbolic statement that was being made. And that break from vertical, patriarchal, authority, institutions that preserved incredible discriminations and oppressions and so on, started to crumble. Civil rights, sexual freedom, environmental consciousness, women's movement, anti-Vietnam movement about the immorality of economic wars. And once you take Humpty Dumpty apart, it's really hard to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, no matter how hard George Bush tries or Ronald Reagan or Bob Dole or whoever. They all happen to be Republicans, but they could be Democrats. <laughs> but you can see that creative government is that tension, by the way, between the force of preservation and the force of change. And the art is not to get so carried away with change you lose the baby with the bath and not to get so caught in inertia that you miss the opportunity for survival, basically, because you don't adapt. Then there was the myth of material acquisition in which the temples become the shopping malls. And you watch thousands of people going through with eyes fixed. Their whole culture centered around the shopping mall. Social institutions, there are the old men counting beads, there's the whole structure. And it's a social institution that represents some of our highest aspirations. And emerging is another myth that is demanded by the limitation of the resources we have available, is that voluntary simplicity is going to be in. That living simply, not collecting stuff, is going to be in. Not just using up resources in order to, because you're not under the illusion it's going to make you happy any longer. I've told about collecting boxes that every time I move, I carry the boxes with me. 
I rent a truck, and these boxes are all my memorabilia. And after a while, I thought, why am I carrying these with me? It costs me money. I've got to put them in storage. I never open them. They're all the important papers that I can't, that I'll want later. <laughs> but why will I want them later? That's the assumption that later will be less interesting than now is, because now is so interesting, I never open the boxes. <laughs> that would be a later thing, yeah. <laughs> much later, baby, much later. <laughs> the art is to uh, leave no footprints. <laughs> but all of this is a selection from the vast, formless universe of creating a reality called a news story. It creates reality for all of our consciousnesses. And it creates the sustaining of a certain kind of value system that is not just. And the rational mind is in the service of protecting your separateness first. Then you can use it for play and sport and technological advance, but it's to make you, you more comfortable and feel safer in a basically unsafe situation. Because your separateness is part of that which is changing. And when you're, when you're, it's like trying to stand on sand that's in the ocean where it's all constantly giving way beneath your feet. I was in New Haven going to New York and I had to take the late night train where you bought the ticket on the train. And so I had just become 60 and the conductor came along and I said, um, senior citizen, please. And he immediately gave me a ticket that cost half of what I would have paid if I hadn't said that. And I said to him, don't you want to see any identification? <laughs> And he said, no. <laughs> that was a story I didn't tell you before because I was punishing. <laughs> but now we now value what we really put down before and what our Native American friends have always valued is the intuitive heart-mind, a deep, deep wisdom in people. We have gotten fascinated with knowledge and we forgot wisdom so that our mythic heroes are people like Henry Kissinger. We're going from a myth that the separation of the church and the state is therefore licensed for the state to be immoral and have no values and lie and cheat and do whatever it needs to do. And that reflects the separation between business and church as well. That was based on the assumption that the church had the power to balance the system. And that we'd have some social institutions that would be based on greed, 
and some social institutions which would be based on compassion. I would say both of those things prove false. Doesn't work. System doesn't work. It's just like doctors who say, my job is only to save lives. As technology makes it possible to keep a life going longer and longer, they have to face the ethical situation. Dr. Kevorkian is just saying, hey, fellas, you can, you can deny it as long as you want, but this is the way the universe is. And you will watch all the laws have to struggle with this. And he may go to jail just like Gandhi went to jail, just like anybody goes to jail. You know, he, I think he's a creepy guy, but at the same moment, I think what he's doing is extraordinary. I wish he'd smile a little more. I wish he saw the humor of his own predicament so he could really enjoy it. He is enjoying it, but he's enjoying it a little bit from somebody. Somebody's enjoying it instead of nobody enjoying it. I work a lot with nobody in my, from my own mind. And Wavy is very helpful to me with his Nobody for President campaign. Because he has all these slogans like, nobody can solve our economic problems. And his best one is, nobody cares. That's the one I like. See? To me, that's a statement of compassion. Nobody cares. See, I'd say that in the advanced course. <laughs> Oh, I went through one that I think is not one that we're in the transition of at the moment, but I was passed through the moment when scheduled feeding was in. <laughs> Remember that? So I could cry my little eyes out and nothing happened. And I've been disempowered ever since. <laughs> That's changed. We now have demand feeding within reason. We had monogamy, remember that? <laughs> By 1975, over 50% of the marriages of the people getting married at that point would end in divorce. Not that we're married then, we're divorced, because that's people from previous generations. We basically now are living in a culture of serial monogamy. Now, is that bad or good? That's your mind that determines that. It just is what is. Do people have any less opportunity to come to God in serial monogamy than in monogamy? Depends on your spiritual practice. If your practice is relationship and you want to use your marriage, wow, one marriage can take you a long way. You can dig a mighty deep well. So it's not a, a good and evil issue. Then you say, well, is it good for the children? Well, you know, I have a number of friends who got divorced and they remarried and all four of the family are really good friends. Everybody just married for the wrong reasons the first time. And they're all doing very well. And the kids end up having two households and four parents. And I've thought about that and I've experienced jealousy in myself. I was stuck with the complete neuroses of two people. You know, I couldn't play anybody off against anybody. You know, and they were neurotic just the same way. That's why they got married. 
So the fun of having four. See, I mean, I'm just shifting consciousness a little bit to say, let's just stay open to what's happening and find whether we can be peaceful in the process of change rather than in always resisting the change. Is this too weird? No, you say no. Say thank you. You reassure me that I can go on. Because every now and then I look at somebody's face that's going like this, and I go, oh, Jesus, I've gone too far out. But I don't care. See, in the advanced course, I don't care. It's interesting to have that kind of up on a stage with a microphone and then watch somebody go to sleep about the third row, you know. And you are talking on and on and on, but that, that consciousness has gone somewhere else. It's, it's not a... <laughs> but that's my problem. I mean, you're just doing what you do. What business is it of me? If you want to sleep, how do I know that the greatest spiritual awakening won't happen in the sleep, in the space that's so sacred to us all at this moment? Maybe that's what you need, a sleep in a spiritual place. <laughs> <laughs> okay, how about the myth, be fruitful and multiply? Seems to have gotten us in a little difficulty, I'd say. <laughs> I think that's open for revision. By demand, <laughs> popular demand. We have a wonderful one called Equal Opportunity for All. That's tasty, isn't it? Do you think that's coming into vogue or going out of vogue? <laughs> See, that depends on whether you are hopeful or hopeless. <laughs> Trungpa Rinpoche said a wise thing to me. He said, stand right in between them. Because if you cling to hope, there's fear. You won't get what you expect. If you cling to hopelessness, you kind of close down the whole possibility. It's the same thing in working with people that are dealing with cancer or with AIDS or with any illness that is potentially going to kill them. It's living with the presence of death and yet living life fully. It's always that balance, incredible balance. It's having people work to keep their temple healthy and alive without being attached to whether it stays that way. And if indeed the whole process is one of leaving their bodies, awesome. And if it's one of regenerating their bodies and having a healthy body to go on in life, awesome. And the attachment to which it is, is just your attachment to which it is. That's all it is. How do you know? How do you really know? You may have a set of beliefs, and that's stuff you're holding on to. But that's just stuff you're holding on to because you're afraid of jumping with no concepts. Isms are certainly suspect as our myths change. Communism, capitalism, nationalism. All the isms look like big egos that are crumbling before our very eye like the Berlin Wall. We're very suspicious of isms because we saw how business without government is piracy. We saw that in our country. 
And in Russia, we saw how government without business is tyranny. Changing myths from the separation of the mind and the body to holistic or the consciousness that our minds and our bodies and our spirits are all of a piece. And that all of our healing processes and all have got to reflect that wisdom because that's now an accepted, and a being forced to be accepted wisdom. And you don't just say it's the body, not the mind, or the body's the most important. Forget most important anymore. These are just interactive processes. And you get at them different ways. So I said we've gone from individualism to a beginning sense of the common good, of the recognition we are part of systems. It's been in the scientific and philosophical literature. I mean, it's Bateson, it's all these people but that we could collectively, I mean, if you think of the collective, the German collective consciousness that dealt with through much denial what was being done to the Jews and others, is that different from our collective denial that allowed us to idolize and place on our altars people like Donald Trump when we knew that the permanent underclass was being created because we could see it around us, but we were busy denying what we were seeing. We had Dynasty and we had Dallas. And then we had an increasing number of people who are the ocean that spreads out into the world over that Mexican border and elsewhere of those who haven't. And how much denial how much closing of your compassionate heart must it take to continue to play the game of King of the Mountain, what's in it for me? And each of us gets the most we can for ourselves. Trickling down, of course, is the assumption that once we have enough for ourselves, we will then create ways to share it with everybody out of our beneficence or out of our obligation, perhaps. That's another level of consciousness. And it's why Chuck's involvement with Social Venture Network, his creation of it, is an absolutely exquisite moment of shifting mythology that Ben and Jerry and Anita Roddick, Wayne Selby from Calvert Fund, and all these wonderful people who are playing with the edge of saying, business has a social responsibility for the common good. Wait until television gets that kind of group going. We're shifting myths from thinking that we were educated for facts to the recognition that we are educated regarding process, not knowledge. Where to find it, like computers. You don't have to know it anymore, you just have to know where to find it. But also, we are beginning to recognize the value of how our mind works, of studying how our mind works, which is meditation because it's sneaking into the culture through stress reduction, basically. And stress is a product of the fear that exists in an unstable situation in which everybody in the situation is caught in their own separateness and has lost the balance that they are part of systems. We had a myth that you chose your career when you were 
12, 14, 16, and then you saw it through. It is now true that the present person in our society should expect to have five career changes in a lifetime. So retraining is no longer something for losers. It's something for winners. It's how quickly you get retrained for your next round. Because you realize you're in an economy that's like a floating crap game. And you've just got to stay very loose as to how you're going to play it. I think we've, we're in an interesting transition period because of the bomb from the myth that war is a solution, a political solution, to recognizing that it is not, that diplomacy is the only strategy, and that unless you have a win-win situation, nobody wins. We're seeing how when somebody wins, somebody loses, and when somebody loses, there they are, the Croats, the Serbs, and the Bosnians. Everybody feels they lost, and now they're going to win. But really, in history, there can be no winners and losers, because we're all in it together. But notice how little compassion there is across those borders between the Muslims and the Christians, the Jews and the Arabs, the Palestinians, the inner city and the suburbs. We had an interesting myth that I had in my history books about 1492 and the great benefit of Columbus discovering America. I think we have matured with our mythic structures. I now feel that we are looking for a way to make an apology for the fact that we built our system on genocide. And we are as culpable as Hitler ever was for what we have done as a people and feel how deep the justifications were in the culture. John Wayne. This is an older one, but we had the myth that we were a, a moral force in the world. And then we had the Vietnam War, and we realized how fallible our systems were. That our fallible meaning that we were caught in acts that were not harmonious with our deepest wisdom. That's the pain of it. The pain for each of you is to be living your life in a way that is not harmonious with your deepest wisdom. And I would say that's my pain. And that ever since 1961, when I took mushrooms, ever since that moment, I have recognized that I have a deep, deep wisdom, a connection to the universe that is at home and true and at one, and that my separateness is just my separateness, and that the systems I am part of are fallible systems, and they are dissonant from the way my heart says. My heart says there is justice. My heart says there is compassion, because that is what my heart is. It's a just and compassionate entity, and so is yours. And we armor them with rationalization to deal with the fact that we are acting in ways that are not just and they are not compassionate. And I figure my whole life has been some an attempt to work with the dis dissonance and the attempt to integrate my inner truth with the way I live.
And it's very, very fascinating as a journey. Fascinating as a journey. Myths. Just a few more. I won't bore you with the whole list. I'm going to write a book about it because it's so good. <laughs> well, we're still in the one about rich and famous of who gets in People magazine. But fame is becoming more trivial as time goes on. Because you see how it's bought, used, and how, how brief it is and how irrelevant it is to the pain of the person bearing it. <laughs> We've gone through myths of the shift of birth coming out of the closet. That was my generation. Now there is death coming out of the closet and being recognized as part of life, part of the life process, and not as some terrible, faulty error that has occurred. <laughs> I love that one. God, outrageous. <laughs> We have the myth that religious institutions provide the ethical base. Mm, well, it depends on what you call the religious institutions. And there are new religions occurring all the time, like the appreciation and honoring of Mother Earth is an emerging religious institution that has a moral, very strong moral code that leads you to collect your bottles and papers and etc. That's also motivated by your fear and your rationalization that you're doing good. Well, it's better than nothing, but it's not much. In terms of the way your lifestyle, I mean my lifestyle, I am not living in harmony with what I know. And there's a way in which that's a drag. It's not a big drag. You know, it's not a drag I may ever rectify. But it is a drag. I'm aware of that distance. So we are living in times of, in interesting times. Remember the Chinese curse, may you live in an interesting time. The question is whether it's a curse or a blessing. See, it's a curse if you're afraid of change. It's a blessing if you can use change to free yourself from your identification with that which changes. See, I really see it as a blessing. I mean, I look at this body, which is now decaying at a deliciously interesting rate. I mean, you can almost notice it from day to day. You know, and there's all these big veins and wrinkles and little marks and spots. And I mean, this is beauty. If I look at it as a beautiful old hand, if I impose upon that all of my social structures, conscious, my conceptual things, about that's my hand. That means I am wrinkles and blood vessels. And look at how much I valued the absence of wrinkles and blood vessels. Am I ready for this? Is there going to be anxiety now? Is this less beautiful? <laughs> I have this just this delicious story that's such fun to tell. It's a little irreverent, but what the hell. I was invited to give a lecture in Beverly Hills at Saks Fifth Avenue for La Prairie Cosmetics. Now, now La Prairie Cosmetics is a, an old firm 
which has a sanitarium sort of for health rejuvenation in Switzerland and now has a lot of products that come out that are anti-aging creams and such. And they were marketing a new anti-aging cream. And I, the previous year, had been a keynote speaker at a conference in New York on aging. So whether it came out of a hat or whatever, they invited me to speak to add a little tone to the event. <laughs> so it wouldn't just be money. So they invited me to speak for 15 minutes about the wisdom of aging. So um, I probably would have passed it up, except they were offering $12,000. It was actually $12,000 for two gigs, 15 minutes each. One was at iMagnons and one was at Saks, but iMagnons didn't have it, so I was just left. But they had made the contract, so I got the 12000 for 15 minutes. So, in my more righteous images of myself, I thought to myself, that's a lot of eyeballs that could be cured through Seva, $12,000. And can I make a moral statement in which I'm supporting La Prairie so that all those people could see again? I mean, it's an interesting ethical dilemma. So then I thought, look, what does it matter where you teach? You teach where the situation presents itself. My teachings are my teachings. I'm not gonna, I'm not tailoring the teachings for who I'm teaching. I'm gonna teach my truth. So why not teach? I mean, they're as deprived as if I go to Guatemala to the, you know, aren't people in Saks Fifth Avenue deprived? Depends on what, you know, what values you. So I agreed to do it and I got a suit and a tie and I, did my thing, and, and I went there. I don't care what costume, what the hell did to me? Costume up for the ball. Right? <laughs> so I was put at a little, these were all, there were little tables of a maybe 10 or 12 people, and there was a uh, person from La Prairie at each one to help each other, each person with individual consultation about how to keep their skin young. And then I was at the table with the people that were going to be presenters. There were three of us. There was the vice president of La Prairie, and then there was a nutritional skin expert. So she um, was telling us what she was going to do in her demonstration, because what she does is she stands up and says, well, you can all do your own test. She says, take your skin and pinch it and hold it for five seconds. And then you let it go and you see how fast it goes back. Okay. So I did mine. We all did put our hands in the middle of the table. I did mine. And the five seconds were over and mine didn't go back. In fact, it would, it's still there. I mean, it would be there unless I go like this. And that's what wrinkles are. They're, you know, they're youth that didn't go back, you know. So it came my turn to speak. And I stood up and I looked out at my audience. Uh, they were serving salad. It was a luncheon. 
So what I saw were a number of people with mouths full of lettuce <laughs> looking up at me with a certain kind of opaque look. And what it reminded me of was when you go out in a field and there's a group of cows and you sort of disturb them at their business and they look up and they're... See, I told you, that's a little irreverent because they're us too, you know. I mean, I could be in the audience too of that situation by some bizarre karmic twist. So the question is, is change beautiful? Is what changes part of the beauty of nature? And are you part of the beauty of nature? And can you allow the changes and delight in them and look for the wisdom inherent in each change rather than resisting it? Can you work to preserve your body and at the same time be ready to let it go? Rilke says the most remarkable thing is to be able to hold death and continue to live. To be able to be at peace with the way of things by cultivating the part of yourself that isn't you anymore, but is, which has nothing to do with time and space, birth and death, coming and going, loss and gain, fame and shame, pleasure and pain. Which ones are you ready for? That would be in the advanced course. I mean, the third patriarch will be in the advanced course, but as a process of deeper study. The one that starts the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. I mean, you want the advanced course, or do you want the beginner course? <laughs> beginner. <laughs> no, I'm just telling you what I would teach if I were teaching the advanced course. I, you're not ready, I know that. <laughs> what I said was aging and death are part of the natural way of things and that if you are buying cosmetics out of fear then it is not going to give you happiness if you are buying them out of celebration Did they pay for it? I guess so. I don't know. I'm not in the business end. <laughs> no, they never invited me back. I think the 12,000 for 15 minutes stuck in somebody's craw. It's interesting for me to just reflect as to where one teaches or what one does with one's energy, just like you have to decide. Same thing, or not decide, or listen to hear how it comes out. I mean, it might be that one person 
in that group is Ananda Mai Ma, just waiting, <laughs> living in Los Angeles. I don't really know that it matters. It's all in the metaphor. I mean, if the truth is in all of us, if you can resonate that truth, everybody has the potential of hearing. That's why I think that when Maharaji wanted to punish me, he'd say, Ramdas is very clever. When he wanted to reward me, he'd say, he's so simple. I realize how clever I am. That's those prefrontal lobe cities, those powers. But I don't know whether I said it to all of you, I said it to some of you, what Maharaji said about powers. Very concisely. Siddhis are these powers, these powers you develop on the spiritual path. Powers of clarity, of knowing, of being able to do something about something. He said, Siddhis are pigship. Maharaji was known at some time in his life as Latrine Baba. That's the lineage you're learning from, so. <laughs> Speaking of that, somebody gave me this Xerox. It says, if you aren't happy. Once upon a time, there was a non-conforming sparrow who decided not to fly south for the winter. However, soon the weather turned so cold that he reluctantly started to fly south. In a short time, ice began to form on his wings, and he fell to earth in a barnyard, almost frozen. Cow passed by and crapped on the little sparrow. The sparrow thought it was the end, but the manure warmed him and defrosted his wings. Warm and happy, able to breathe, he started to sing. Just then, a large cat came by, and hearing the chirping, investigated the sounds. The cat cleared away the manure, found the chirping bird, and promptly ate him. The moral of this story, one, so three morals. Everyone who shits on you is not necessarily your enemy. Number two, Everyone who gets you out of the shit is not necessarily your friend. <laughs> and number three, if you're warm and happy in a pile of shit, keep your mouth shut. <laughs> 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 